Hello, folks. I'm the dude, better known as Joseph DePaul, here at Therefore I Geek, and today we have a special edition for you guys. Today is our long-form introspective on the author, revolutionary, and fighter George Orwell. You may know Orwell's name best for his two seminal works in the middle of the 20th century, Animal Farm and 1984. And in this series, we are going to take a look at the breadth of the man's life and work, starting with his most well-known novel, 1984. Published in 1949, just a few months before Orwell's death, it has sold over 20 million copies and have been translated into several dozen languages and has been seen as a staple of Cold War literature and a flashpoint for Anglo-American literature on the topic of the Soviet Union, communism, and just general totalitarianism. Now in the 21st century, Orwell's novel has received new life, smashing it to the top of the Amazon bestseller list as early as this year, 2017. Today, I am joined with our Therefore I Geek regulars, Tracy and Andrew, to discuss at length Orwell's novel, 1984. Andrew, Tracy, thanks for joining me. Hello. Hi. So this is a passion project for me because Orwell left a huge mark when I first read 1984, and we kind of agreed this is going to be an author we're going to spend a lot of time on. So we're going to start with 1984, the novel. So I want to start with Andrew. Let's just go through what was your first impression reading the novel, going through it, and thinking about it in preparation for this podcast. So I'll be honest, I have mixed feelings about 1984. Certain parts of it are very good, they're very prophetic, and just generally very interesting to read. And I'll be honest, there are portions of it that I found almost impossible to read. That I made my way through them, but they were difficult to get through and to enjoy. So Tracy, get, let's get your, your thoughts on it. I feel very similar. So 1984 is a very heavy-handed novel. There is absolutely no subtlety to the message behind it, and I think that it was probably intentional. And I would agree that there are some bits that specifically a whole section in which the main character is reading a book. And basically, this almost feels like a cop out, but Orwell throws the content of what that character is reading into the book. So you're reading along. And at that point, I completely just skipped past it because it reminded me in many ways of some of the Ayn Rand novels. Atlas Shrugged is a big one. I'm a fan of Ayn Rand. I'm a fan of Orwell, but at times they can just be a little too much, even for someone who actually agrees with them on most of their points. What were some of the things that struck you, we'll start with Andrew, just reading through it the first time that maybe hit you the hardest? Going through it, did you kind of get, oh, I can see why this novel has made the impact that it has? Certainly in places I can see that. I think what struck me the most, honestly, was really the bleakness of it, both in its physical descriptions and I think, quite honestly, its thoughts on humanity as a whole, that we are not, at least in Orwell's thoughts, we are not moving towards a better society, a better place. Mm -hmm. That we were on this downward slide and maybe that either this is where we end up or as a warning of if we don't change what we're doing, this is where we will be. Mm -hmm. That's probably the thing that struck me the most. As far as some of the lesser things, I would say he has a very strong command of the English language, which is slightly ironic given the whole fact that the destruction of language plays a pivotal role in this book. Mm -hmm. So that, that was a very interesting, almost contradiction. Mm. Tracy, go ahead. I saw two things right away. While I would agree that much of the book is bleak, I actually saw a lot of brightness and peacefulness and joy in the moments in which the two main characters 
are really lost in themselves. When Winston and Julia first meet up, you get this sense that Winston's self-reflection reveals a man who is overweight, who is perhaps riddled by acne and sore joints, who's beaten down. And the impression I got off the bat was that he was perhaps in his late 50s. And then you suddenly realize around the time that he meets this young, beautiful woman who really, really likes him, at least sexually, that he's actually quite a bit younger than that. He's just taken on a much older persona. And I think that sort of lends itself to the bleakness that everyone feels older than they are. But in those moments that they spend together in their apartment that's supposedly hidden away from the government and all of, and Big Brother's watchful eyes reveals very youthful very idealistic sort of underpinnings to all of this. And idealism supposedly is what has led us to this socialist utopia that is not so utopian after all. Mm -hmm. So it shows that I think Orwell really brings out that idealism springs new in everyone. It's just how it's carried out may differ. Mm -hmm. And the second thing that I noticed is that while many of the things that Orwell seems to preach are very conservative in that let's not allow the destruction of language, book burning and ignoring past histories is a bad thing. At the same time, he also cries for a sexual revolution, which is intrinsically not conservative at all. And I found that a very interesting dichotomy. So those yeah. are the two things that jumped out to me. Yeah, Orwell's contradictions as a man in this book and through his life, I think would be fun to explore. And I think as we get deeper into this, it's kind of interesting what the reader takes away and what Oral may have meant. I remember when I read this the first time and then rereading it with a fine tooth comb, just the power Orwell delivered his message with, with just this hammer fist. He, he, as you pointed out, he didn't pull any punches. And I was struck by just the incisiveness and directness of the entire novel, that Orwell didn't really leave much to the imagination that he was very clear who he was talking about, what he was talking about, both in terms of historical allegory, which we'll get into a little bit later, but also as a political theory. That, you know, he clearly thought totalitarianism in all its forms, but specifically when he wrote this book, he had Soviet communism in mind, was a true threat to humanity's very nature. And it's amazing as he goes through this book, as you go through the adventure with Winston and Julia, Orwell stops and gives you these very powerful, almost but not quite polemic deliveries of basically the defense of human nature and how back then communism was seen as the way of the future. And Orwell, who was a socialist, saw this as a direct threat to human nature and human freedom and, and individuality since he was a perfect corruption of it correct i mean it's very clear that he doesn't oppose idealism or socialism in its concepts he just believes in this as a corruption of those dreams i don't know if i would go that far i think he clearly saw collectivism as in opposition to his worldview he was clearly i think an individualist and we can get deeper into that because i think that comes out in the third part of the novel there is a difference between socialism and Stalinism and communism that's true and it's again Orwell was a socialist but he clearly saw a deep threat from Soviet communism and he was never a communist at any point I think he flirted with anarchism at one point in his life but I do want to get let's start with part one of the book 
because part one is where Orwell sets the tone and sets the world and introduces us to Winston Smith. And almost from the start, we see, as Tracy, a guy that feels beaten down. He has this ulcer that's bothering him. His apartment is bleak. The, the world is cold and white. Buildings have no color to them. Pipes are leaking. He has this kind of monotonous job. You know, there's a war going on. There's bombs going off. He has this kind of subversive act. He does these subversive things to history. I'm curious what your take was coming away from part one. Part one kind of sets the stage for the whole world. Let's go into, I guess, the the big party slogans. You're introduced to Big Brother, introduced to Thought Police. You're introduced to the slogans of war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. What did you guys take away from that? Let's start with Tracy. So the introduction to this book is very monotonous, like you said. And there's an overwhelming feeling of just bleakness, but you also, you know the end of the story before it starts, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of a couple of chapters that focus on how Winston goes through and rewrites every piece of documentation, depending on what the ministry wants people to believe that day. And this sounds, it rang a little bit true, when I'm reading this, I think, isn't that sort of what we've just seen in this past election, in this very modern time? We're seeing the rise of fake news, although I think what people are describing as fake news now, a few months later, is, isn't exactly the same thing. But this creation of fake proof that something did or did not happen, that it happened a certain way or didn't happen a certain way. And it's very believable now, I think, that something like this could have been written into dystopian fiction at any given time. Although I think at that time it was far more prescient than maybe some of his colleagues thought. And it's amazing staying with that. In those couple of chapters where he works for, Winston Smith works for the Ministry of Truth and he's in the records department. And his job is to rewrite newspaper articles. And I really think this was one of Orwell's like big messages in the book was this rewriting of history. Right. It fell into the ignorance is strength mantra. If you want to break the book down into the three parts, you know, the war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. He kind of tackles ignorance is strength very strongly and very directly in a lot of detail. He spends a lot of detail talking about Winston's rewriting history how he does it and just the ease and the effect it has like when winston creates a person out of thin air and he says this person did not exist until winston wrote it down and now he is a hero of oceania i mean i think oral really spent a lot of time in the book has been remembered mostly for the telescreens you know and has again had this resurgence of relevance because of surveillance concerns in the united states but really orwell's What's amazing to me about that first part of the book is his big concern is the rewriting of history. He mentions the telescreens. He seems to take it for granted that the reader would see these as a bad thing. Doesn't really spend a lot of time on them. A lot of the capital he spends time on, or real estate of the book he spends time on, is that language and rewriting of history. Did you get the same sense, Tracy? Did I did. But, you know, the other interesting thing that I would point out is at least the impression that I got was that only the middle class are affected by this. The proles, the proletariat, yes. the vast majority of the citizens of Oceania don't care about any of this. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, they're perhaps the wiser for it. 
So I thought that that was quite interesting as well, because what we're actually seeing right now is that it seems to be the underclass that are the most misled by this. All right. Andrew, what do you think? Did you walk away with that? Did you notice that the book's remembered for telescreens, but yet somehow Orwell spends more real estate on, on rewriting history? What did you think about that? So the telescreens, I think that's one of those things that we are looking back more as modern readers because television has become such a large part of our life. And now the age of the internet, things like web cameras and things like that, they're so ubiquitous in our lives that that stands out to us because of how universal it is. Mm -hmm. But I, I absolutely agree that Orwell spent way more time talking about the changing of history. And it he really takes the concept of history is written by the victors to the mm -hmm. extreme in that history is, is written and then rewritten again by the victors. Right. And yes, the party is the one who is victorious, but even within that, there are, it's changed as people win or lose within the party. They remove people from existence who are failures to the party. Sure. I mean, it just, you disappear. And I think where a lot of that comes from is Orwell's time in Spain. And the aftermath of his militia, the PUM, the Party of Marxist Unification, getting expelled and outlawed and then ridiculed, not only in just the Spanish press, but the communist press in Britain. And he sees how his organization is just lied about down the line, ridiculous, self-contradictory lies. And I think that had a huge impact. And knowing that when you read this book, you can see back then it would have been considered fake news. This the lying that the daily worker engaged in on his militia that he, in his previous book, How Much Tech Catalonia, said, I would never have known about this or even thought about it had I not been a member of the PUM. I would have just taken it as face value. He, he says that in his book. And I think it has a huge impact uh, and you could see it has a huge impact here in this book as he uses it, as he does with a lot of things, to create the world of 1984 and create that authenticity. And, and that's where I want to go with next was the authenticity of that first part of the book that you really feel like you're living in a communist state, both one that is imagined in the future, but certainly one that could very well have existed in the Soviet Union, in the Warsaw Pact nations and in china like that Did that strike you guys in any way the the kind of feeling of authenticity so it struck me to an extent i think and i think this goes into orwell just in general using a very heavy hand when describing these early chapters that it was a little bit almost a little bit too much i could see what he was drawing from but i think he extrapolated a little too far to me that part became a little unbelievable in terms of how far he took it. In what way? I think it became too extreme, too bleak. Oh, okay, the bleakness of it. Yeah. Go now, ahead. Now, I would say that certainly I can see where he had it solidly grounded in reality, even of his time. Mm -hmm. For me, Gatt. it wasn't the bleakness that threw me off. It was the fact that someone was so willing to so quickly challenge it. So Winston is a beaten down character when we are introduced to him. He has accepted this in every part of his life. And yet... When the chance arises to buy a blank book and write down his thoughts in it, he takes it, going mm -hmm. so far as to put a piece of dust on the corner of the book to make sure that no one has read it. Mm -hmm. In a world that Orwell has painted in such deep tones of gray, that seems quite a chance to take for someone who is very solidly a member of the party. If he were someone on the fringe, if he had been someone like Julia who had always had some other perversion to entertain him, I would get it. But why this thing? Why now? 
Why does he sneak off to this antique store over and over and over? Maybe once, but if this were the world that we're supposed to believe it is, I would expect to see him walk right back out with his hands in his pockets, having bought nothing and never return. Just the fact that he's so willing to challenge the party, given the ubiquitousness of, and, and of everyone, he ought to know how quickly people can be written out of history. It just seems like you a know, lot. What I found interesting about Winston, when he gets that diary early in the book and he writes down with Big Brother, what I found interesting about it, and I'm curious to see what you think, is the impulsiveness of it. I mean, and once he writes it, and, and Orwell has Winston think, you know, immediately I'm dead the second he does that. Winston can't control himself. And you see that in, in throughout the early parts of the first book, he, when he visits a prostitute, when he, he does these things consistently, impulsively. I always got the impression that this was building in Winston, and it just exploded at this point. Obviously, it had to because it's the beginning of the book. But, you know, when we go back to his life with his wife and just the the immiseration he had with his wife and his fascination with memory, that to me that was just a recurring theme was Winston's memory. Throughout the book, Orwell was playing on memory with the rewriting of history and then Winston's own memory. Mm-hmm. And that kind of impulsiveness to me was just striking, very powerful. But to the authenticity of it, I think at this point it should be brought up that Orwell admitted in writing to friends that the book itself is a parody of Soviet communism. I don't think he ever intended it to be taken too literally. And I think there's evidence of that in, in, the, in the second part of the book. What I do think struck me as terribly authentic or incredibly authentic was just the life of someone living in this kind of government. And other authors, there was an author who wrote the book, The Captive Mind. It was a Pole who lived under Soviet communism. And he wrote how he was stunned how Orwell could get the details of the rationing and the breaking down of appliances and the lack of razor blades or the lack of luxuries or just how cold it was in the apartments. He gets these little details that even though, as I think Andrew points out, the world is exaggerated, but these details keep the book grounded. And they're so good that even people who lived in Soviet bloc nations thought he had lived in Soviet bloc nations. There's a report on YouTube. You can find it. It was a news report. And the news reporter says that he was expelled from the Soviet Union. He never lived in the Soviet Union. He was never there. And I think that's to show how strong he was as a writer. And I think, again, he draws on his experience from Spain to do that. I really do think that Barcelona in terms of mood and atmosphere during his time there is what he uses as inspiration to draw from to create London in this particular book. Because again, those details are just almost too much to for someone just to not know about them. It's not even just about the the rationing, but it's the, the rationale behind the rationing, if you'll forgive that. The idea that, oh, we didn't actually cut your chocolate ration. It used to be smaller. We raised it. Right. It felt very authentically communist, to be honest. Oh, yeah. And that, again, that's, I think, one of his strengths. Go ahead, Andrew. Those are the kinds of details, I think, that did help ground it and that did have that basis in reality. More where I was thinking of it, just really the entirety of the world feels gray. You know, it's all these concrete buildings. Yes. And to a yeah. large extent, that is Soviet Russia. Mm-hmm. However, at the same time, you have Soviet Russia building these extravagant train stations and things like that that just mm-hmm. don't exist in this world. No, that's that's true. And Orwell can be forgiven for not knowing that because, again, he didn't actually live in the Soviet Union. Absolutely. He didn't know it. But um, I will say I did – and I, you might have enjoyed the description of the ministry buildings, how these – there were these giant pyramids 
of just glistening monuments to the party. I, you I know what it reminded me of is sad. the corporation building, and I'm drawing a blank on the name of the corporation, but the building from Blade Runner, mm. where it's that giant kind of glass pyramid. It just, when I read that part, that's the mental image that popped up. Sure. Huh. I, yeah. I almost thought of the Jedi Temple, because it wasn't. it's not perfectly a pyramid shape, but it did have that just huge imposing size over the surrounding area. Yeah. Now, before we leave part one, I think we should talk about Julia. Winston's initial feelings about Julia are incredibly you know, violent. He sees her, he, he, he hates her almost immediately, and then the direction of the book is blown open when Julia slips in the piece of paper that says, I love you in it. I'm curious what Tracy thinks here, because George Packer, who is an editor for an Orwell essay series, had said that Julia was one of the more less convincing elements of 1984, and Orwell had been criticized for his treatment of uh, female characters throughout his writing career, even in his in his nonfiction work. Tracy, what do you think about Julia, who never got a last name? Well, the first thing that I would say is that I laughed when I read Winston's reaction to Julia because he had the opposite reaction to O'Brien, of course. Mm -hmm. And that, to me kind of feeds into my earlier theory that this man was completely devoted to the party. It was a gut response to someone who his intuition told him wasn't in lockstep with the rest of them. I would promise you that that was, that would have been his actual gut reaction. His gut reaction to O'Brien when he was deep in the bowels of the ministry was because Winston himself was a party member. He could feel his intuition told him that O'Brien was another member of the party. Whereas with Julia, there was just something that struck him as off about her, and that would have prompted the violent response. I have Julia, a feeling it was her anti-sex sash, I think, was his primary... Um, yeah, he was very upset about that, given that. his situation yeah, I, with his wife. <laughs> could, yeah, exactly. That's an excellent point, is that he, he had such a bad experience with his wife, and here he sees this young woman, and he just has this visceral and she, reaction and she's beautifully shaped. I mean, she, she is a sexual object, for her to reject that, to basically flaunt it in front of him and then say you can't have it. He just hates that about it. Yeah. And then he has a, a perfect 180-degree turn right. when he realizes that she's actually more sexually open than he is. Right. And I didn't think that Julia was an unnatural character. I've met women like her. I had some things in common with her. I would say she seemed a little bit less emotional than I would have expected, especially given the amount of time that they spent in their apartment away from prying eyes, you know, basically cuddling. I'm sorry, it doesn't matter what your friends with benefit scenario is. If you spend hours cuddling, someone's going to develop feelings. And I think mm -hmm. it would have been on bo in both parties. But as a whole, I didn't dislike her character at all or, or think that she was poorly designed. I, I actually thought she was quite believable. Andrew? I think Winston's reactions to Julia are probably one of the most genuine things about Winston. First, I think his hatred of her and just that feeling of, oh God, not another one. <laughs> right. Constantly that he's been living around this and he sees these women all the time and it just frustrates him to absolutely no end. But then also his response when she slips on the, sheet, the slip of paper that says, I love you, and he almost doesn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Like, he, <laughs> I mean, literally his brain almost shuts down. At this point, he figures he's dead in the, within a week, mm -hmm. and he doesn't even know how to react to that. Right. As far as Julia herself, I think 
her just kind of coming out of nowhere with the slip of paper, I kind of just attribute that to a little bit of heavy handedness and just moving the story forward. You know, the two of them had to get together somehow. So instead of wasting book real estate on it, Orwell just went ahead and got it out of the way. Beyond that, I think Julia is a reasonably believable character. And she certainly, especially in, in part two, plays into some of the things that Orwell is getting at, especially when, when Winston is reading the book. Mm-hmm. You can see Julia having some of the exact responses that are being talked about. Even though she's rebelling, she's kind of a model for what the society is doing to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, and this will carry us into part two, is I did find Julia mostly convincing. And I, I did enjoy Orwell giving Winston what I felt was a very honest introspection about his feelings about women and sex and how they tend to conflict and how on the one hand they can swing from violent rape fantasies to to love and i think again that was another moment of like orwell drawing on his own being very honest you know he's honest throughout all of his writings about his feelings about these kind of things and being really really honest you know using himself as a catalyst uh for for winston and i really do think much like edgar Allan poe orwell is Winston for for the most part. He really does put himself in this world. And I think carrying over to part two, where they have this love affair, you see a little bit more of the world. What I found interesting about the relationship between Julia is, while she's described attractively in body shape, there's this part when they go out to the woods where Winston gets his first really clear look at her. And it's this beautiful moment because they get away from the city. They're in this natural world that Orwell spends a good amount of time really romanticizing in his in his writing because he he did like nature a lot personally and i think again that shines through the book and 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 julia has this spot where she brings her men which i always found interesting i i like julia just because she really is a survivor she's very dynamically different from winston she plans she has she is a survivor she has contingency options she she seems to know the ins and outs of how to get around the party without giving a crap about the world around her where winston seems to care a lot about you know don't you remember the war you know who were we fighting she doesn't seem to care about that but she is absolutely concerned with her survival what i did find interesting was when winston gets a look at her I believe the line is, you couldn't call her attractive except for her mouth, which I thought was really, really interesting, is that these, they're not, the two of them are not exactly good looking. They're just people who have found each other. I felt it adds to that, to that authenticity, and and it kind of made their relationship uh, believable to me and, and, and strengthened throughout the course of part two. So I'm curious, as Part two progresses and you, we get there, the relationship uh, expands. Where do you think Orwell is going with this kind of moment in the book where you know, it's not a one man is going to bring down an empire. Their version of revolution is sleeping with each other. What do you what do you think about that? Or do you even see it that way? No, I certainly had no no fallacies that Winston and or Julia were going to bring down Big Brother. Mm-hmm. There was just at no point in the in the book up to that point did i have any inclination that that's where things were headed just how small winston is and how monumental big brother and the party are that just that wasn't going to be a thing in terms of the two of them i enjoyed reading about how how they had to attempt to carry on this relationship in a society that is that was otherwise unaccepting and unwilling for it to exist while i don't think it's what orwell was going for it did at least prompt thoughts in my head of 
various points in our history and in history in general where these kinds of relationships existed and what people had to go through in order to have the relationships. For me, I think that these two people under any other circumstances would never have been together. Mm-hmm. It, half of the thrill was in the secrecy. I think Winston had a little bit more of a global view. He was interested in the changing of who they were at war with. He was concerned about larger ramifications. Julia, I think, was perhaps more practical in that she didn't want to be ruled by the iron fist of Big Brother. And so she would just wouldn't. She wouldn't right. allow them to dictate that. Whereas with Winston, it was more... I mean, when he goes to O'Brien and O'Brien offers him a way into the resistance and, and he take, essentially takes him up on it, that shows that Winston was a little bit more at least interested in bringing down the party and the ministry and Big Brother as a whole. And perhaps going back to a life in which you could decide for yourself who you wanted to sleep with or marry or whatever. Whereas with Julia, that that simply wasn't the case. And I think her ties to Winston were much more loose than his ties to her. I think it was a much larger betrayal in the end when he betrays Julia than when she betrays him. Yeah, I I find her character coming alive in part two really amazing. It's like Orwell didn't plan for this to happen, you know, as we view the book. But it's amazing how you get the impression that Orwell would not slut shame anyone because, you know, Winston loves the fact that Julia has just been with dozens or maybe hundreds of people. Every time he hears about it, he's he's more enthralled. Yet at the same time, there's these moments in the book where Julia wouldn't call her a feminist icon, but just seems to just want her to go her own way. Her rebellion is just doing whatever she can that she's not allowed to do in the way she likes it, which is just sleeping with people. And there's that great moment where in their, they're in their hideaway where she talks about, I just want to wear makeup and wear heels, right? And these, these minor rebellions that she has throughout, throughout the second part, I found com- completely fascinating. And it's interesting, too, that her form of rebellion is makeup and heels right. and that the Big Brother's idea of the perfect woman is in many ways a shape of the woman that third and fourth wave feminism wants to create, free mm-hmm. of the patriarchy that forces you to wear heels and makeup and... And show off something that you necessarily are not. And yet for her, that is liberation. Again, I don't think that Julia is the perfect woman. And I'm not even convinced that Orwell could create a perfectly three-dimensional woman if he wanted to. Nor did I think that he cared. Mm. But I just, in light of current events, I thought that Julia in that way was a very interesting character. No, I actually love the fact that Julia is imperfect. Because Winston is far from perfect. And together that works. While I had some issues with the first part of the book... The second part of the book, to me, became much more believable. That's when I started getting interested in, in what the book had to say and what, what it was telling me. Because these people become real, they're imperfect, they're, I can relate to them. Mm-hmm. And the relationship they build, certainly it has its problems. I mean, just on a fundamental level. But I know people who've had that relationship. I, I have had similar relationships. Mm-hmm. And so that, that connects with... I think helps connect it with people. Oh, I get, I'm not saying that Julia should be perfect as a character. I'm just saying I don't think she was as fully formed as Winston. We see a lot of Winston's introspection, but we never have any idea of what's actually going on in Julia's brain other than what she says. And that's true. And I don't I, and I think it's fair to say I don't think Orwell was was aiming for that. I think he really just wanted us to see the world from Winston's point of view. That everything was a mystery to Winston's, even Julia's own thoughts. 
mm-hmm. and actions were amazing. So war is peace, another one of the slogans of the party. And we see that kind of come into focus for the first time in, in the second half more most clearly because they're leading up to this moment called hate week. And the party, we see that the world has been broken into these three superpowers, Oceania, Eurasia, and East Asia, and that they kind of swap who they're fighting depending on the day of the week, almost. I think he borrows a lot of this from his essay, You and the Atomic Bomb, the short essay that he, and in there he mentions kind of, he predicts this kind of superpower realignment, and he uses it in the book. And I found the moment in the second half, I felt, is where you see Orwell, who's not a funny writer in this, and he's not a funny writer in general, but the one moment that did quite, I found humorous, was during Hate Week, where he really does draw on imagery from Nuremberg rallies and Soviet parades, where the guys up there giving the screed about the art, the nation they're fighting, and I think at that point it was East Asia, and he's, God, we're fighting East Asia, da 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 da, and in the middle of it, no, we're fighting Eurasia, and they're the bad guys, and Goldstein has been doing all this and ripped down the posters and all that. I, I thought that was quite funny. What, what did you guys think of that part? Because I, I, to me, that was one of the centerpieces of the second part. And it was certainly one of the centerpieces, and I think it was done very well. It was executed very well. To me, there, that's a little bit where I started to feel that Orwell lacked lacked faith or had an under underestimated the the strength of of kind of the human spirit that everybody's instantaneously duped mid speech. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that uh, yeah. does seem like a little bit of a stretch. I don't. I really don't believe he meant for us to take that seriously. I think a lot of readers who aren't privy to his other works could justifiably see that as kind of silly. But just having read it and reread it a couple times and knowing him, I really do think he's making fun of communism and the bully bureau or the communist Pull kind it of bureau. Politburo, yeah, yeah. I think he is really making fun of them at that point. No, and and I I, do... I, I agree, but I think there's to me it struck as there there being more to that, and it's it's in the book all over the place, especially as we get towards the end of part two and into part three. The fact, the idea of basically just being able to beat down the society in its entirety, and this is kind of one of the the peaks of that. Yeah. So, like I said, I think Orwell's execution, and I think his point is very well made. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I still think, it, I just thought it was funny. <laughs> no, no, there, no, there is certainly an, an aspect of it. When the guy comes up, whispers into it, and and he says, without missing a stride, the guy just right. changes tack. <laughs> and and I can, I could absolutely see that. Yeah. But again, what got me is the fact that the entire rally goes along with him. <laughs> with, with, without without confusion. No, it, it, and that's my, it's my favorite. Rip down the posters, and there's this fury that happens. I, 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 I truly just, just I. It is one of my favorite parts of the book. Let's explore another character. We've mentioned him, O'Brien, and this is where O'Brien starts to come in, in a little more focus. Is Winston has this obsession with O'Brien, and it's strange almost a for, crush, almost a crush, and it's strange because Orwell didn't like his dad. Father figures. Don't, don't do well in most of his stories. And it's interesting that Orwell calls the figurehead of the party big brother and not father. I always, I always found that really interesting. But his, his relationship with O'Brien, these kind of leaps of faith Winston is taking, where did you think Orwell was going with that? Was he making an attack on, on human nature or was he trying to say something else? Because I always took it as kind of, you know, Orwell is... is almost saying Winston shouldn't trust his guts. For me, I look at at this and I say, 
it's not necessarily that Winston shouldn't trust his gut. I think Orwell is more saying that our gut can be as wrong as anything. I mean, if you don't make a rational decision with, I mean, and this isn't a, his relationship with O'Brien is never based on reason. Mm-mm. It's always his feeling, the impressions that he gets from him. And O'Brien plays right along with that. I'm not sure why O'Brien seemed to think that Winston was the person that was worth all this effort, but he did. And I, I, I guess I would say that perhaps this is Orwell's appeal to reason over mm-hmm. instinct. I would say, I, I tend to agree with Dude on this one, actually, that Orwell is making a point that he really shouldn't trust. And I was actually a little surprised at how readily he did trust O'Brien because he, he as well admits that trusting O'Brien is going to lead to his death. Mm-hmm. He know he knows this even more, I think, than than his relationship with Julia is his involvement with O'Brien is going to go poorly for him. And he goes forward with it anyways. So like Tracy said, the rational part of him says, don't do it. This is not good for you because for the most part, you know, our brain is programmed to help us survive. Mm-hmm. And if your brain is, you know, something's telling you don't do this. It's not good for your survival. You should probably listen to that. And Winston goes against all of that. Yeah. And what's interesting in the, in addition to this, to that in the second half of the book, there's these elements where Winston really thinks he's constantly being lied to by the government. And I, I don't remember if this was quite in the first part or the second part. So, for instance, there's this belief that the government's bombing its own cities. There's mention that there was a prior nuclear war. There's also these little hints that Orwell might have been dropping that Winston believed that the prisoners he was seeing, I think in this case they were the East Asian prisoners, were just being recycled. There's a line in there where, where mm-hmm. he describes one of the prisoners as if he had been wearing the chains for a long time. And and again, I think he was drawing on his past life as a cop in Burma, because I don't think it was an accident that they were that he describes the East Asians with a great deal of detail, doesn't really talk about the Eurasians. He's, mm-hmm. And it's also, I don't think, an accident that O'Brien's butler was either Chinese or Southeast Asian. I think he was also Asian. I don't think that was a mistake. I, again, I think that was Orwell. Again, he's at the end of his life when he writes this, so he he uses his life to kind of give the novel that focus that I think partly makes it endearing to the reader and allows us to enjoy it as a novel, not just polemics. So what's interesting is how even today people talk about, you know, Orwell wasn't using the word false flag, but these are things that have appeared in our vernacular that I think has allowed the book to kind of survive. There's a great line, and he mentioned. what's interesting is he mentions this in his book, Road to Wigan Pier. He talks about the lottery and how the, lo- how the working class are obsessed with the, the lottery and that people think the lottery is the government designed to keep the working class distracted. But, and he says it in the book, knowing people who work in the government, I don't think they're that smart. Yet in part two, I believe he clearly states that he thinks you know, the lottery winners are never in London. They're always somewhere else in Oceania. And he believes to think the government's lying to him about that. That's another, I think, detail of the book that really delivers for the reader the kind of world Orwell had put us in and where he thought some of us were going. I was curious. Talk a little bit about that. It's interesting to think about that one. And I don't know how much if I'd given that quite as much thought as, as I probably should have. I did find it very interesting. Not only did he say, you know, when they announced that the winners are never in London, they're somewhere else. And he also guessed that in other, in that wherever that somewhere else is, they would claim the winners in London. Exactly. That that the system is being worked against. Basically, you're working the, the system's working against you from both ends. It's a very interesting point, I think. It also raises the question 
of whether or not, and I'm forgetting the name that he gave to oh, Airstrip One, which used mm-hmm. to be Britain. It also raises the question of whether Airstrip One is even connected to the outside world, or if it's just the same people sort of cycling, like you were mentioning the prisoners that have been sort of, his thought was perhaps they've just been kept and they're just paraded out every time we've got a new rival. Uh, Speaking of prisoners, though, I think I found more interest in the three political opponents of Big Brother that Winston sees in the in the bar, where they're drinking what sounds like isopropyl alcohol. Mm-hmm. And they're Victor, sitting in a corner. Victory gin. <laughs> yes, yes. Victory and they're gin sitting with, there. with cloves. Oh, God, that sounds so awful. It sounded <laughs> awful. And they're sitting in the corner, and they're sort of woebegone looks sort of staring at a chessboard and one of them starts to cry and the chestnut tree song starts to play yes and he knows he basically won't see them again yeah it's a beautiful moment it really is and and of course it's a foreshadowing of Mm -hmm. something that will happen later but though what do you think of those those guys what what is the meaning behind the releasing them out into the wild again just to be just to be sad and and well expect the end of their life and at any time at any moment. Tra- Tracy gets a little bit ahead of us because I think that comes into focus in part three. But to Tracy's earlier point, I think this was one of those moments in the book that was building in Winston's mind that he saw these guys, he knew who they were, they were heroes of the revolution. One of them was a cartoonist, and then he sees them and he gets a good look at them, and their faces have been cru- basically been crushed, literally. There's, there's, they appear that they have been broken bones in their faces. Yet he sees them in his... He's remembering when he sees them, and again, that memory keeps coming into play, is he's remembering seeing them, and then he remembers erasing them from history, and, and yeah. knowing that they can't be in two places at once. And that photo sort of comes through across the desk long after it was supposed to have been erased, and he right. sort of holds on to it very briefly... Until he realizes what uh, crime that could that could be and and destroys it. And again, that photo comes into play in the third part because O'Brien has it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he shows it to him. But before we go to the third part, I will say I thought the second part of this book, as much as I truly love this book and and there's just brilliant moments in it, the second part I think had two moments that that kind of took me out of it. Uh, one was O'Brien convincing Julia to meet O'Brien. I, that was the one moment where I, I could not believe the characters would do this. I believe Winston would do it, but Julia being such a survivor, mm-hmm. I, 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 and her hatred for the inner party, I, I do feel, or, again, Oral was dying when he wrote this. I feel like that was maybe the one moment where he just kind of pushed the I believe button on that one and, and made her go with him. I, I, I just, it's not, a, it's not a lethal error to the book, but it is kind of one of those moments where you go, ah. Eh, didn't quite like that. And to Tracy's earlier point, while I did enjoy Orwell's The Goldstein Book, The Theory and Practice of Collectivist Oligarchies, and I liked mm-hmm. what was in it, it is Ayn Randian in its de- in, in its design because it does kind of, he's just reading a book, and I felt he's explaining to us what we've already seen. Like, we kind of yes. get it. Yeah. And I, those were, the, I think, again, not lethal flaws to the book but just kind of little dings in this in this one part whereas i really enjoyed the first part i very much enjoyed the third part there were just two little dings here i noticed it was curious andrew did you notice them did you did you think they were as important as i do uh i didn't i didn't notice your first point about about o'brien and julia to the second point i would agree that after a while it just feels like i'm being explained to and i can't put a finger on it 
but I felt like I was being talked at in circles. Yeah, I, I, I think I think most people will be justified in saying that if, if Orwell had kind of pared that down or shown rather than told, I think the second part would be much stronger than I felt it was. Tracy, where are you on this one? I absolutely agree. Um, again, I once I got about four pages into the, the little book segment, I just sort of skipped to the end. Again, mm-hmm. I've, Ayn Rand does do this where she'll she'll have one character sort of monologue for about 10 mm-hmm. pages and makes you want yeah. to throw the book across the room. And I already see the flaws in this society. You don't need to tell right. me what they are. So at that point, I just sort of let go of that, skip to the end and move forward in the book. Just, and that kept me from being thrown too far out of it. Yeah, I think narratively, it does hurt the book a little bit. That being said, being the kind of political nerd that I am, I did find it incredibly interesting because I did feel like it was Orwell talking directly to us at this point. Um, Absolutely. The one, yeah. the other thing I would say is this is the part at which I was saying you you see a lot of the theories that Orwell is putting forward. Mm-hmm. And then even though she's a revolutionary, if you look at Julia, you still see these theories, the effect these theories have on her even when she doesn't want to adapt to the system. Absolutely. That, that no matter what your actual stance is, it is still insidious enough to get inside you, and yeah. you don't even know it. And I will it's- say this. I have a little pet theory. I was reading Hitchens' book, Why Orwell Matters, because Orwell had, believe it or not, reviewed for the Observer uh, Hayek's Road to Serfdom in like 46 or 47. And when I read the book the first time, I was almost convinced that Orwell was a strong defender of capitalism. When you read the rest of his works, it's clearly not true. It's clearly not true. But just reading the book cold, you get that feeling. And, you know, there was evidence at the time that people got the feeling that Orwell had kind of turned to capitalism. He had to write letters to say, no, 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 I'm still a socialist. I still believe in this. But what was interesting here is I think you do see the effect of of Hayek on his writings, because even in the review, Orwell, while not a capitalist, didn't like capitalism, even up to the day he died, he grants Hayek's one point that a planned economy can lead to totalitarianism. And I think it does show Orwell was fair that if he disagreed with you politically, if you were on his side and anti-totalitarian, he would grant you the point. And I, and I do think that the Goldstein book, and I might be going out of limb saying this, was probably the one moment where that seems to be very clear, that, that he did he, he was affected by the 1940s kind of comeback capitalism. Did you, I mean, not knowing he was, a, did you know he was a social? Did you get that feel where you're going, this guy must be all for free markets? Oh, I didn't think he had any particular economic stance whatsoever in this book. Oh, really? Okay. I was... It did not seem as though he were particularly criticizing the economics. It was more the all-encompassing social aspect of the government, the mm-hmm. idea that you could not think outside it. And interestingly enough, for set, for a world in which individualism was discouraged, there wasn't a whole lot of people thinking in the collective. Everyone was still out for themselves, which I thought was quite interesting. Andrew, what did you think? Well, I mean, to Tracy's point, I mean, that that's just endemic of communism. Yeah, absolutely. Where, where even in a collective society, everyone is out looking for themselves. Um, in terms of Orwell's stance, I had read Homage to Catalonia first. So coming into 1984, I had a fairly clear understanding of where he stood. Mm-hmm. But again, if you had read it cold, I think readers could be forgiven because Animal Farm in 1984, his two big books. I mean, anyone who knows about Orwell who has read anything by Orwell has probably read those two books. I feel like just coming at it cold. And the reason why I think it felt that way is 
the the economics of the book are more subtle than other ham-fisted quote-unquote ways that he went about it i i would just call it direct because he talks about shortages and rationing and the lack of luxuries and how, especially in that book, you know, a floating fortress, these super battleships that we never get a good look at. You know, with one super battleship, you could build 100 cargo ships. That was, that's a very Hayekian argument, right? And that's why I kind of I, I glean that. I, I can see where you're coming from on that one. When I read that, my mind actually just went back to the fact that he lived in England through World War II. And that, and that even through the 40s and into the 50s, rationing and that kind of thing was still a very real fact of life for them. So that's kind of where I thought he was pulling from. But I can I can absolutely see what you're saying Actually, in both, terms of the Hayekian. You are probably more likely right than I am, but that was just someone who's familiar with market arguments saw that and went, oh, he must be a capitalist. And it's like, no, that's not true. Let's go into part three. Part three to me is one of the more remarkable parts of this book. And certainly the most powerful, because, again, we've got those three party slogans of war is peace, freedom is slavery. And I think here is the ignorance is strength moment where we or actually no, English is strength is probably part one, I should say. War is peace is mostly part two. Here is the freedom is slavery moment. And it's where O'Brien has captured them. Julia and, and Winston are, are hanging out in their love of nest and O'Brien captures them. And Winston is essentially tortured for the last 80 pages of the book. Mm-hmm. And it is remarkable in, in the, again, the detail and strength that Orwell puts puts forth in this. I think, it, to me, he got back on track with this third part and really lands the kind of deadly rhetorical blows against authoritarianism and totalitarianism in this third part. I, did you see this even coming? How did you react to this? It was certainly a rather violent change in tone for the book. I mean, that is both metaphorical and literal. Yeah. It, you know, it, I hate to say, like, this but kind of living in the world we do right now and the three of us are in our are in our early 30s we're about winston's age i think right a few years younger i think but yeah close okay. i think he's like 36 and you and i are 32 i thought he was 38 but yeah oh i remember he was that old okay because he's 40 by the end of the book that's true true so you know being old enough to have kind of observed all of you know the the war on terror since 9 11 winston is 39 thank you tracy i just looked at my notes <laughs> So us having lived lived through and having a fairly good good grasp of the war on terror and knowing kind of the the things that have been done in the, the name of freedom and in in the name of the government and protecting ourselves this was very very real instead of the Ministry of Love this could have been a CIA black mm-hmm. site very easily even down to things like them leaving the lights on all the time and the noise and moving people in and out moving people constantly keeping people on the move so they had no idea where they were what time of day and night it was all of those things are just and certainly orwell had no idea of knowing what was going to happen in 2001 you know mm-hmm. di- having died in in 49 yeah the first it died in january 49 i mean like right at the cusp of the second half of the century oh uh, no 40 excuse me 50 january 21st 1950 okay so yeah you know, he, he had no way of seeing what was coming right. but it it just really blew me away at how much he unfortunately got right. So once this sort of hits part three and Winston basically sees everything that he hopes to be true break apart. So he, he loses in the course of five or six chapters. He manages to lose his job, his love nest with Julia, 
Julia herself, his ideal version of Julia in his head, and the only person he's ever really considered a friend, O'Brien, whether mm -hmm. or not that was a correct way of thinking or not. No, because he clearly insults his other co-workers at the Ministry of, of Truth. Oh, yeah, I can't stand any of them. He calls, I think Parsons, at one point, he calls paralyzingly stupid. Parsons, and it, it, ironically enough, Parsons is the only one that survives. So Syme has become an unperson, and Winston well, is doesn't he see Doesn't he see Parsons in the holding cell? He does. Oh, that's that was, right, he does, he does, that, so perhaps really, not. Yeah, that's really one of the great, before you go into it, that's real, to me, that was really one of the great moments of the book, is that Parsons is shown to be so corrupted that when his kids sell him out, he is proud of them. You know, mm -hmm. and, and it's that and it's the same phrase that's destroyed Winston. Right. He goes, my daughter heard me say down with big brother in my sleep. I'm so glad she caught me again. It was one of these moments in the book that I found, you know, it hits you like a, a thunderbolt. At the same time, I kind of wonder if that was just theatrics being put on by O'Brien. Oh, O'Brien put him in there to do that. Yeah, I, maybe. I mean, that's the interesting Be thing. Because the whole book. the whole thing is is it really is is an exercise in theatrics. Yeah, I mean that's the, there's always this subtext that you're being lied to the entire time. Mm -hmm. There's always that is existing throughout the entire book. Yeah, and that's really I think the ultimate torture for Winston is the unmaking of him, the unmaking mm -hmm. of everything that he has ever believed, everything he's hoped, everything he's dreamed of, everything he thinks he is is broken completely apart. And it's not. I mean, once he arrives in room 101, he's already not a person. He has one thing left. And that's not even Julia. It's just his loyalty to her, which is mm -hmm. a completely separate thing. The rats thing, mm -hmm. perhaps he was the the originator of it. Maybe maybe the idea of rat torture came from Orwell. At least it's inclusion in a lot of modern stuff. He credits but, China for it. In the book, he goes, this Chinese did this. Yeah, that which doesn't again, surprise I, me at all. <laughs> which again is Orwell, I think, reaching for his, his past in the East, again, bringing that into the book. And that may be where he heard of it. And I'm sure that this has existed prior, but the idea of rats used as torture has become fairly common in modern literature. I'm thinking specifically of the Game of Thrones, mm -hmm. where a lot of the, the prisoners in Heron Hall were tortured by the mountain using rats. And I don't know, that maybe lacked a little of the impact based basically on that the fact that i'd already seen it several times uh, but other than that yes this is a pretty a pretty thorough breaking down and i can't imagine many people being able to withstand i mean i kept getting an impression of patrick's sir patrick stewart as in in star trek going there are four lights i am so glad you mentioned yes. that because i i'm convinced well i want to talk about it a little bit later but i am convinced that's where that episode of star trek got the four lights from is from yep. this book and i think we'll deal with that more completely in in the podcast when we talk about orwell's overall effect on on the culture but that in what struck me in part three in my opinion is where orwell really explains what he's talking about and what he's going for in this book and in two particular monologues o'brien gives and i want to read one a little bit because to me, this little speech that O'Brien gives is right up there with like some of the great speeches in, let's just say, pop culture. I wish it were more well known than it is when you we remember the greed speech from Wall Street. Gordon Gecko's "Greed is good, greed works." This I call I call it O'Brien's power speech. To me, is just the most devastating moment of the book, and really I think cements the book in my mind, as, as the kind of powerful anti, 
totalitarian work that it is, because he says, the party seeks power entirely for its own sake. We are not interested in the good of others. We are interested solely in power, not wealth or luxury or long life or happiness. Only power, pure power. What pure power means, you will understand presently. We are different from all the oligarchies of the past in that we know what we are doing. And all the others, even those who resemble ourselves, were cowards and hypocrites. The German Nazis and the Russian communists came very close to us in their methods, but they never had the courage to recognize their own motives. They pretended, perhaps they even believed that they had seized power unwillingly and for a limited time, and that just around the corner there lay a paradise where human beings would be free and equal. We are not like that. We know that no one ever seizes power with the intention of relinquishing it. Power is not a means, it is an end. And I'm curious, when you guys came around uh, to this point, how you felt about it, because to me, that's the message, that's the big message of the book, is that governments, the party, want power, and for us to always be vigilant when we give power or the government seeks to take power either from us or give it just expand its own power. To, to me, that was one of the most powerful moments of the book. And I was curious how you guys, if you have reactions to that. That is a very powerful moment. And it's one of those interesting things where, despite the fact that we've just said that we constantly feel like we're being lied to, I know that O'Brien is telling me the truth. Mm-hmm. It It's almost like a, a little bit of a Richard Third kind of moment where... Richard lies to everyone on stage, but when he turns and talks just just to the audience, he's always telling the truth. That's how I felt with o- with O'Brien when he's talking to Winston in the time. It's a special, intimate kind of moment where he is giving Winston everything Winston ever wanted in terms of the truth. Right? Winston is constantly we talk about memory, but Winston's also talking about what's true and what's not. And here O'Brien gives him all of it. He lays it on the table unashamed, completely. Mm-hmm. And the truth is far more horrifying than anyone, certainly that Winston had ever dreamed it could be. Mm -hmm. To me, it was a little bit of a relief because I feel as though in modern society, we're also lied to all the time, right? We're always being told that we're giving up some freedom in order to be more safe. We're giving up more of our money in taxes so that we can help our fellow man. We're headed in such a progressive direction and it always feels so oily and so false that it's it would be kind of a relief to hear any any politician look us in the face and say, "Oh, I'm just about out, I'm just out for personal power. That's all I yeah. want." It, it would be John- a relief, even if even though that's a terrible thing, even though we don't want a politician that's like that. It's it's better than to be lied to, than for someone to piss on our leg and call it rain. I believe it was uh, the Economist. I don't know. Actually, I shouldn't call him an economist, but it's uh, the writer Jonah no- uh, Norberg. I recently heard him in a video. He goes, the road to hell is paved in good intentions and tax dollars. And what I th- what I think is different here is Orwell, to his great credit, really strips away the altruistic facade of this kind of collectivist ideology. And I and I think the way for uh, going back to Wall Street, the way my Michael Douglas's character puts us on notice for greed and and. Our society today is fairly acutely aware of greed and its corrupting effects. Orwell, I think, puts us on notice for power and that anytime the government or anyone in power wants more of it, even if they say it's for a good reason, there's that part of them just wants that power mm-hmm. and they should always be aware of it. And I, and I think 
of all the things we talk about with this book, you know, the lying, the changing of history, the newspeak, double think, big brother, to me, I think this is the great message of the book. Be aware and vigilant for power. That's basically where I come away from at this moment. So let's go to the Winston. We don't have to go through the details of Winston's torture. We don't have to go through all that. Although the rat sequence in room 101 was, I think, excellently written and, and, and effectively terrifying. But to Tracy's earlier point where, you know, you saw those, the, the Troika in the little shop where Winston now finds himself after he's been released. He's now kind of fat and pudgy. They've let him out. What's so interesting is, and again, O'Brien says this, and again, it's Orwell really just kind of giving the book, the message of the book away. We don't just want to break your body. We don't want to just make you confess stuff. We want to be in your head and we want you to believe what we believe and then we'll kill you and then we'll take you out. It's just that, that moment. How did you feel about that? Because that's, that's extreme. That's very different. I can't think of another book or story that goes that far. Well, there's really two moments, right? The first moment is the one in which he meets up with Julia one more time or sees her in the park, um, if you can call it that. Yeah, and the, the, tr- the tragic moment of that. I actually reread that in preparation for this. It is the most tragic moment of the it's book. brutal. It's absolutely yeah. brutal. Two people that were in love and use their love as an act of rebellion to be so broken and to have to admit that to each other. I mean, it's one thing to understand and to sort of avoid the other person, but when you run directly into them and you're forced to confess what's happened, that's really, really tough. And then I think as a direct, um, indirect correlation with that, he finds himself in this pub one more time, basically in the same position as these three former heroes of the The revolution of the, well, of the regime. Mm Mm-hmm. And then subsequently of the revolution. And they have. They've, they've gotten in his head. And the minute he recognizes that, he knows that it's just a matter of perhaps moments, maybe days, but probably closer to moments until he will. And, but it, it's a relief, right, to be mm-hmm. done, to not have to think about this anymore. He's just waiting for the bullet. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not even convinced that the bullets, it's a real bullet, honestly. Mm. That, that, that once they've broken him to that point that it doesn't matter if he's alive. He's, he, they own him. He, they, he is now one of them. So mm-hmm. everything that was Winston is, is gone. Right. Yep. So, I mean, yep. it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if he's alive or dead to them at that point. There's no, especially being the nobody the, that he was to start. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if they come back for him. Yeah. And I feel, I feel like Andrew might agree with me on this one. It's almost, and I don't, again, I don't know if Orwell did this on purpose, but it does feel like, Winston's such an insignificant character in the greater scheme of of the regime and the party. And there's an immense amount of time and resources spent on destroying him. And it reminded me of the immense amount of time and resources Stalin spent destroying Trotsky, who really didn't have many followers in the 30s, was a fairly insignificant figure back then. Not a lot of people were, were reading his work. And at least this is according to his biographer, Robert Service. And still... Stalin sends someone to put an ice axe into the back of his head. I'm just curious if, if, if that register, if that if that resonates well, with you. That's something that Orwell felt very strongly about anyway, because it comes through ridiculously heavy-handedly in Animal Farm. He was a big scholar, perhaps, of the the relationship between Stalin and Trotsky, and uh, I think he was very firmly on Trotsky's side, at least just given the the fiction that he's written on that mm-hmm. subject. I, I would I would agree with you. And I think the one thing I would say, though, is I mean, Stalin is no was known for just unbearable paranoia. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where that's where it comes in 
with Stalin because the reality of, of the Soviet situation was that Stalin is not the was not the or would not have been the chosen successor of Lenin and it would have been Trotsky. Well, by the time Lenin realized Stalin was in charge, it was too late. Like he had already had his stroke. He had already he was already oh, appointed no. general secretary. Right. But he was like, Oh no, you know, it's too late. Make it Trotsky and it was just by that point Stalin was too entrenched. No, absolutely. But the fact that Lenin had that 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 thought even I think is why Stalin was so desperate in his persecution. But I I, I think that is an interesting point of, of the level of resources to which Stalin put put after Trotsky. It certainly rings with the level of resources O'Brien puts into Winston. So encapsulating the book, what I found interesting and and why I think while I do think Animal Farm is a better written book. While I find the reason why I find 1984 more powerful, and I think it's more of my favorite, is that unlike Animal Farm, where Orwell, as Tracy points out, focuses on the the individuals, you know, the pigs as as the the copy for the Russian Revolution, and you can line up the characters with historical characters. I think the more powerful point in this book is again O'Brien just kind of says it is the power is for the party. It's not about these individual people. It's about the party's power and keeping the party in charge for in perpetuity. And I think that's what I walked away from in the end was and why I think this book is a little bit more powerful and more relevant in the 21st century than maybe the more superiorly written Animal Farm. Be curious to think uh, what Tracy thinks. These are very different books. I mean, they're basically on the same theme, Mm -hmm. but Animal Farm is a little bit more of an allegory it flows a little bit more lightly some of the things are quietly hideous right the way that they treat the horse mm-hmm. and perhaps more realistic again like you said you can line it up almost sometimes almost character for character with historical figures and certainly with the way that russian communism treated the ordinary person but 1984 was a little more human I think Mm. it was a little easier to sympathize with Winston, both in his relationship with Julia and his eventual breakdown, because I could put myself in his shoes much more easily than I could the shoes of, let's say, Molly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Andrew? Well, I think that it's tries to hit on the the difference is that Animal Farm is an allegory. Mm -hmm. You know, it it is very, very much the Russian Revolution and and its corruption and, and Soviet communism. 1984, although it deals with a lot of the same concepts and ideas it is a wholly independent work yes it's a little heavy-handed with the comparisons of stalin and trotsky and whatnot but he could have just as easily kind of leveled that out a little bit still made his points in this book and still had the the powerful impact mm-hmm. it's not me retelling the story in a way that relates to people better it's it's funny because i've always thought of the two almost being completely interconnected in that Animal Farm felt like it was a story of the revolution and then 1984 is the story of the regime after the revolution. At least in my mind, I've always seen them as as connected. And at least the reason why I really like 1984 is, is part, partly because you're right. I think Animal Farm is much more specifically driven at Soviet communism and, and the Russian revolution. Whereas 1984 is a little bit more general in that Orwell is really attacking, you know, not just Soviet communism and, and, and German fascism and Nazism, but totalitarianism and collectivism as a whole. And I think that's kind of what makes the book far more endearing and far more 
you know, long lasting in, in our memories that yeah. his his direct attacks, you know, are historically true. But it was written in a way that the future generations can still draw a lot mm. from his warnings in this book. It, it's concepts and ideas as opposed to right. allegorical fiction. Right, exactly. And then I think I think last couple questions on this one. I found it really interesting. This is a very European book because as Americans, we're really used to the one man taking down an empire, Luke Skywalker taking down the empire or Hunger Games and all that kind of stuff. You know, what's amazing to me is Win Orwell in this one destroys Winston and basically says at the end, there is, there is a point to which you can go too far and you can never come back and, and there's nothing you can do. I, I find that probably one of the more unique features of the book, especially considering other dystopians, particularly American, like Fahrenheit 451, there's a, a, a hint of optimism. That's all destroyed in 1984. Well, it's a warning. Mm -hmm. Warnings kind of lose their bite if you say that, you know, there's an easy way out, right? Mm. And as Americans, we don't just like stories about heroes. We all secretly believe we are one, right? Mm -hmm. I don't. Th I think that Orwell wants us to remember that there's no possibility of being a hero in a situation mm -hmm. like this. Don't let it get this far, folks. You're never going to make it. Right. I think I think that's exactly correct. Well, and as Americans, we we live in a country that quite literally embodies that idea of small group of heroes taking on the the great empire. That is the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. Looking back on it, it's actually funny how English this book is. Yes. Where. Even under this totalitarian communist social society, they're still English. Yep, <laughs> and that and that's very Orwell. I mean, in his essay, he's well, the lion and the unicorn. He just extols the virtues of Englishness. He he didn't want to lose that. So, final thoughts on the book. We'll start with Andrew. After going through this, really with a fine tooth comb and talking it out, you know, what what are your thoughts on on Orwell's 1984 as it pertains to his time then and and now? I mean, I think. It is very much an important book. It, it's hard to get away from that, that concept that it's not a perfect book and it doesn't perfectly fit Orwell's time. It doesn't perfectly fit our current time now. But even when he's wrong, it's worth reading to have the discussion about where he went wrong. You know, in places like I mentioned before, that I am certain there are things that I thought from the book that Orwell had no thought or intention of, of sparking in my head, but it made me think. And certainly that is one of, I think Orwell's points is that we as a society need to think, right? He has extolled the virtues of the individual. And one of the the, the greatest in virtue of the individual is the ability to think and to have ideas and to discuss them and to be able to disagree. This book is a warning for a direction I don't think we went down. It was a possibility at that time. But I don't think that the world will be brought down because of an overbearing dictator. I think the world will be brought down perhaps more in the Aldous Huxley way in which there is so much trivial information flying back and forth that there's no need for a ministry of truth to make up facts. We're doing it on our own. I think this is an important book, but I think this would have been a more important book had the Iron Curtain not fallen. We have the benefit of looking at this through the lens of history and we seeing do. what happened to communism and to the states that were most closely associated with with Orwell and with 1984. And, we and there was a time in the 60s when we didn't know if, which way it would swing. I, I would say as recently as the early 70s, I, I forgot who did the compiling of the data because as 
in the early 70s, non-democracies outnumbered democracies in the world. And then, mm -hmm. then, then it starts to change. So I think, you know, he was almost, almost right, which is even more terrifying. Yeah. I mean, for me, when I think about this book, I'm reminded just because I know he didn't think it was going to be a literal prediction. And I think David Brin, the science fiction author, said, great science fiction writers don't write to predict the future. They write to tell you what not to let happen. And I think that's what Orwell was doing. And I think he landed that punch right on the bullseye is in, in chapter after chapter, part after part, almost sentence after sentence, Orwell in a fictional setting, in a science fiction setting, lays out the case against totalitarianism in almost every facet you can think of. And it is so sharp and so incisive. And then he illustrates the damage it can do to the, to the individual. Oddly enough, not the group, the individual. We don't get death camps or concentration camps in this book. It is the damage to the person. And I think that's what makes this book incredibly important for people to read, is that we can read a lot of polemics and nonfiction essays, as Orwell was was known for as his time, against you know totalitarianism or for or against a particular political party. But the fact that he went the science fiction route and the fiction route, something he wasn't known for, really speaks to his, his skill as a writer and his ability to really break open and dissect ideas for us to digest and then recognize when we kind of drift a little bit too close to these things he told us not to go near. Because I, I have a very hard time thinking of other authors who have had this kind of effect on our lexicon. You know, Big Brother almost immediately comes up when you talk about overbearing government. I mean, again, when when you heard the phrase alternative facts, the book hit number one in Amazon. Double think, double, double speak. Think. I mean, I think all oh, the only one I can think of is Nabokov with the phrase Lolita, who came this close to. So I think this is probably one of the more important books of the, of the 20th century and certainly something that still has a great deal of bearing on the 20th century. So any final words? No, but it's definitely it's it's worth a read. And it's a whole lot more interesting when you put it in the context of Orwell's actual life. Mm -hmm. So in reading the book, it, it really helps to know a little bit about the man. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would just say, read it and think on it. Mm -hmm. Let it let it spark thoughts and see where they take you. All right, folks, you've been listening to Therefore I Geeks special podcast on Orwell's landmark and seminal book, 1984. Stay tuned because we will be continuing our discussion about Orwell, uh, the man, his life, his works and history. So for Therefore I Geek, I'm Joseph DePaul. I'm Andrew. And I'm Tracy.